Please open your Bibles to two different Old Testament passages. They're both printed for you in the bulletin, but that's cheating. The first is uh, Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1, where we read that the king's heart is a stream of water. Now, you little theologians, can you possibly draw a heart that is also a stream of water, that's also a river? If you can, you're better than me, but that's all I got. So, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Now, please turn to Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 24. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars, makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, but who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up the rivers. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And if you will, just going one phrase into chapter 45, and thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Now may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my lips, may they be pleasing to you and may you use them to encourage us, to challenge us, to build us up in that holy faith once delivered unto the saints. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. In 1954, seven years old, the Delaware River, close to my home, only three or four miles away, the Delaware River flooded with such destructive fury that it overwhelmed and washed away two of the bridges that connected New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Well, likewise, I've read of how in the past, 
prior to the establishment of the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Tennessee River frequently flooded with disastrous consequences. You know, a flooding, raging river, destructively overwhelming all around it. That's a frightening thing. And in Isaiah, chapter 43 and verse 2, in Isaiah 43 and verse 2, you're told, you are told by the Lord that there will be times in your life when your circumstances will seem like a raging river threatening to overwhelm you. The Lord tells you that's going to be true. It may be because of health challenges, financial problems, family concerns, personal issues. The list goes on and on. But, but whatever form such moments may take, they can seem, I mean, it can seem as as if you are about to be overwhelmed by the waters of a raging river. Well, this morning I want to talk about one of those raging rivers. At least for some of you, it's a raging river. And this morning, I want to talk about one of those flooding rivers, those turbulent waters that some of you may find frightening and overwhelming. And I'm talking about that which is common to all of us, and that is our current political situation. You may have felt that way in the past. You may feel that way now. A few months ago, a friend of mine told me that uh, no one in this church, he told me that he felt so overwhelmed by the possibility of a certain candidate for president being elected that he and his wife discussed moving to another country. You know, they were scared. Um, And some of you may relate to that concern. But now listen to the rest of Isaiah 43, verse 2. Here's the rest of Isaiah 43, verse 2. Here's the good news. The Lord, he's told you that you're going to have to pass through raging floods. But he also assures you that those flooding waters will not overwhelm you. That they will not overwhelm you. Now, I read for you Proverbs 21, verse 1. In Proverbs 21, verse 1, the Lord leads the author of the Proverbs to compare the hearts of those who are in positions of authority to streams, to to rivers. And, And in Proverbs 21, verse 1, you're assured that those streams, those rivers, the hearts of those in authority, they're under the Lord's control. 
under the Lord's control. And not only are they under the Lord's control, but that he will turn them in whatever direction he chooses to turn them. But he will be the one who does the turning. That truth, that the Lord controls the river, he controls the hearts of those in authority, that truth is, is often illustrated in the scriptures and one, one, just one such historical illustration is what we just read together in Isaiah chapter 44 and verses 24 through 28. It's just but one historical illustration. But um, before we look at those verses, before we comment upon them, let me just give you some historical background here. Isaiah, the prophet, writes some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And inspired by the Lord, he has already prophesied that in his own day, in his own day, the people of Judah will suffer at the hands of the Assyrian Empire, the big boy on the block, okay? But Isaiah has also told his people that the raging waters of Assyria will not totally overwhelm them. Those waters will suddenly ebb away. That's in his own day. But, but then, inspired by the Lord, Isaiah sees a hundred years into the future. He sees, this is 2021, he sees 2121. He sees a hundred years into the future. And as he sees into the future, he speaks about the rise of an empire that no one ever heard of. He talks about the rise of some empire called Babylon. Babylon was just a tiny little city at the time. But Isaiah foresees the rise of this empire. He sees this empire overwhelming the Assyrian Empire, taking control of the Middle East. And he also sees that empire, the Babylonian Empire, being used by the Lord to punish the people of Judah for turning their backs on him. And this time, Isaiah foresees Babylon totally inundating the land of Judah, totally destroying the city of Jerusalem and its temple and deporting many of its people into exile. Well, all of that comes to pass. Interestingly, if you want to look at this at the end of Isaiah 39, is one of those places where Isaiah foresees that future moment in time. And the reason I point you to Isaiah 39, because immediately following Isaiah 39, where Isaiah has looked into the future and he sees the rise of this, this devastating empire, you come to Isaiah 40. And, and what happens in Isaiah 40? In Isaiah 40, the Lord tells his prophet, 
to speak tenderly to his people. The Lord tells his prophet, comfort my people. Comfort my people? What what have I just told them? Comfort them. Comfort them. Who, Who am I supposed to be speaking these words of comfort? You're supposed to speak them to that future people of Israel who are living as devastated exiles in Babylon. These are the same people that the Lord is speaking to in Isaiah 44, verses 24 through 28. He's speaking to those who in the future will find themselves living as exiles in Babylon. An enslaved people living in a foreign land. And it is for them, these people some 100 actually what we're about to read here in these verses, some 160 years in the future, 70 years in the future, it is to them that the Lord has a specific word of comfort for Isaiah to speak. So look at Isaiah 44, verse 24. And look, first thing the Lord does is he begins with the good news I'm your redeemer. I'm your deliverer. Now, now, come on. Think about that. To whom is he speaking? I am your redeemer. I am your deliverer. To whom is he speaking? He is speaking to people exiled in Babylon because they have turned their backs on the Lord. He's not speaking to some little holy enclave here, some, you know, wonderfully righteous people deserving of the Lord's blessing. He's speaking to the people living in exile because they've turned their back on the Lord. And he says to them, remember, I'm your redeemer. I'm your deliverer. They turn their back on him, but he has not turned his back on them. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 44, if you look back up at verse 21, the Lord assures them, you will not be forgotten by me. Wow. Think about that. Their sins are hideous. Their their sins are not only hideous, they are many. And they have been justly punished by the Lord for their rebellion. Yet he says to them, I won't forget you. And he says to them, in fact, I will redeem you. I will deliver you. Now, here in Isaiah 44, There's a specific focus to the redemption, the deliverance of which the Lord is speaking. Specific focus in these verses. The redemption, the deliverance of which the Lord speaks refers specifically to what we are about to learn, specifically about a stunning moment in history that no one 
no one could have anticipated. Look at Isaiah 44, verses 24 through 26. In these verses, God reminds them, I'm the Lord. I am the creator. I am the controller of all things. I am the one who formed you. I am the one who chose you to be my people. And now is the sovereign Lord. He is about to do, about to do. In the prophecy about to do. From Isaiah's perspective, 170 years in the future. But the Lord is about to do what no one could have anticipated. No one that is except his inspired message, a servant and messengers, his, his inspired prophets. What's he going to do? Look at verse 26. He is going to raise up the ruins of Judah. And he is going to decree that Jerusalem be re-inhabited and the cities of Jerusalem be rebuilt. Look at verse 27. It's symbolic language. The Lord says, I'm going to dry up the river. Now, if you're a Jew living in Babylon and the Lord says to you, I'm going to dry up the river, you're going to think about the exodus. The exodus that took place almost a thousand years before. The exodus when the Lord led his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. How? By drying up the waters. By drying up the deep. Drying up the waters of the Red Sea and the Jordan River. And now in verse 27 of Isaiah 44, he speaks of a second exodus. Of a second exodus, an exodus of his people out of Babylon. And the river that he will symbolically dry up will be the Euphrates. That river which symbolically, if you're looking at a map, that river which symbolically separated the exiles in Babylon. And here flows the Euphrates from their homeland in Judah. Now, the language is symbolic. The waters of the Euphrates, they weren't literally dried up, but the Lord dried them up in the sense that he would no longer allow them to hinder the return of his people to their homeland. I find verses 25 and the first part of verse 26, I find it intriguing, not exactly precisely sure what the Lord is referring to here, but perhaps he's referring to the so-called wise men of Babylon predicting that the empire of Babylon uh, would have a long, enduring history. But the Lord says, no, that's not true. That's not so. And only the Lord's inspired prophet could look some 170 years into the future and foresee a great deliverance that the Lord is going to bring to pass. And that deliverance only the Lord could bring to pass. The deliverance of his destitute, 
exiled people, enslaved people, their deliverance out of the land of Babylon, their deliverance out of the, a destitute, enslaved people being delivered out of the hands of the most powerful political and military force in the Middle East. Just feel all that. Feel all that. And here's how he's going to do it. Look at verse 28. He'll accomplish all this through a man named Cyrus. A man who will issue a decree that Jerusalem be rebuilt and the foundation of the temple be set into place. Now, if I was to pass out sheets of paper to all of you and ask, who is Cyrus? How many of you would answer that with great confidence? Some of you would, I know, because I've taught you. Who is Cyrus? Who is Cyrus? He's a man who 170 years after Isaiah's day will become the king of the Medo-Persian Empire which means that he is a king of an empire that no one in Isaiah's day could have ever even anticipated or thought about. Nobody had any idea about a Medo-Persian empire. Nobody had any idea about a man named Cyrus. None. Yet Isaiah calls this future king by name and describes And then describes for you, by the way, describes, if you read Isaiah 40 through 48, he describes for you Cyrus's conquest of Babylon and the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. And it is Cyrus who will issue the decree that Jerusalem be rebuilt and the foundations of the temple be laid. And by the way, if you want to read the history of all that, look at Ezra chapter 1, the first chapter of Ezra. But, but, but if you do that, you're going to note in Ezra chapter 1, there's more. Just wait, there's more. It's like an ad on television. Just wait, there's more. There is more. Because in Ezra chapter 1, you learn that not only does Cyrus issue such a degree, decree, Cyrus also freely chooses to underwrite the cost of the people's return and chooses to provide the materials they will need to rebuild the temple. Now, Cyrus is not a believer. Cyrus is not a believer. He may appear to be willing to honor the God of the Jews. He's just covering all his bets. I mean, he just wants to get in good with another god if he can, if possible. But we know that Cyrus remained faithful to to his own pagan god named Marduk. I'm going to call my next dog Marduk. I like that. So if I ever have a next dog, so, so that's a personal issue. Okay, okay. And yet in Isaiah 44 and verse 28, look at Isaiah 44, verse 28. The Lord calls Cyrus my shepherd. The Lord calls unbelieving Cyrus my shepherd. 
Why? Because the Lord will so turn the heart of Cyrus that Cyrus will shepherd the people of Judah back to their homes. And why I went ahead and read Isaiah 45.1 is because in Isaiah 45.1, the Lord calls Cyrus his anointed. His anointed. To be the Lord's anointed is to be set apart by the Lord for a particular purpose. It is to be set apart by the Lord to do whatever he turns your heart to do. And in that sense, Cyrus is the Lord's anointed. Cyrus clearly doesn't think of himself as doing the Lord's bidding. I mean, he doesn't think that way. He doesn't think himself doing the Lord's bidding. What Cyrus does, he does to cover all his bets. He issues this decree, this decree to hopefully place himself in good standing with another deity. You, you know, you can never have enough deities on your side. Cyrus has no idea that the Lord is directing his heart, but in fact, that is precisely what the Lord is doing. So, there you have it. Clear statement in Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, which the Lord turns in whatever direction he chooses. And here in Isaiah 44, you have a historical example of that truth. The Lord turning the heart of Cyrus to issue a decree that Jerusalem and the temple be rebuilt. Now, I told you that in this text, Isaiah 44, 24 through 28, in this text, 21 through 28, if you will, in this text, that's how the word redeemer, that's how the word deliverer is being used. It has to do with the immediate good news with which Isaiah was to comfort his people. He's told them you're going into exile, but now he's telling him the Lord will deliver you out of that exile. But as you know, there's even greater good news. There's even greater good news. Interestingly, Nebuchadnezzar, that king of Babylon, was called the Lord's servant unwittingly used by the Lord to punish Judah and Cyrus called the Lord's servant unwittingly used by the Lord to return the Jews to Judah. But of course, throughout Isaiah, you're told of the coming of one far greater than Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus. If you will, in the prophecy of Isaiah, if you will, I'm going to summarize the prophecy of Isaiah in two or three sentences. One sentence and one run-on sentence. Okay, two, two sentences. Maybe it should be three or four, but two sentences. Here's the summary of the book of Isaiah. The Lord is saying to you, I'm telling you about Nebuchadnezzar. I'm telling you about Cyrus. And I'm telling you about these distant historical events. These events, 100, 170 years into the future. I'm telling you about those things so that when they come to pass, 
you will know that I am the one true King of kings and Lord of lords, that I am the one and only true God. And then, being the one true King of kings and Lord of lords, look at Isaiah 45, the last part of verse 23. If you're using your bulletin, you're, 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 you may be a little lost here, and I apologize, but the last part of Isaiah 45 and verse 23, being the one king of kings and lord of lords, he tells them, I also want you to know that there is coming a day when before me every knee will bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance to me. But wait, there's more. Because in Philippians chapter 2, just listen, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, you learn that the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess is Jesus. It is Jesus who is the Christ who is, what does the word Christ mean? Who is the anointed one. He is the servant of the Lord. He is the anointed one. And as the servant of the Lord, as the anointed one, Jesus will willingly suffer the punishment your sins of merit. He will die in payment for your rebellion. He'll then rise from the dead, ascend back to the Father, where he now sovereignly reigns over all and will one day come again to set all things right side up. Amen. Amen. Because he's the Redeemer. The Redeemer, the Deliverer. He is the one who by grace, through his gift of faith, delivers you from the raging waters of sin's curse and power, rescues you from the dominion of darkness, and brings you to live forever in his kingdom of light. So now hear the good news. Listen to me. Even now, right now, at this moment in our history, Jesus is in control of the rivers. Jesus is in control of the rivers. He controls the hearts of those who sit in positions of authority. Our present political waters may seem to you to be a raging river threatening to overwhelm you and yours. But remember who's in control of the river. It's the Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. It's Jesus. He controls the hearts of those in authority. And he turns those hearts. He turns those hearts. Even if they don't know their hearts are being turned, he turns those hearts in whatever direction he chooses. I don't know what the future will bring. But I, I know the one who holds the future. I know the one who holds the future. The citizens 
We should stay involved with some sort of level of common sense and courteous courtesy. We should stay involved in the political process. But we do so knowing who's in control. The Lord is speaking tenderly to you. He wants to comfort you. He wants you to hear him say, I control the hearts of those in authority. Yeah, the rain may fall. I don't know if the Lord would ever have said yeah, but yes, the rain may fall. And the waters may rise. They may even seem threatening. But be assured, I'm in control of the river. They will not overwhelm my people, my church. I will be with you always. And remember that I have promised that no matter how the rivers may rage, no matter how threatening the waters may seem, remember that not even all the power of hell can overcome you because you are the ones I have called to be my people. And I am your redeemer. I am your deliverer. I am in control of the river. Let's pray. Father, teach us these truths. Use them to comfort our hearts. Father, may we look to you for your sovereign protection and care. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.